welcome to episode 67 of Creaky Chair Film Podcast, the show where we discuss all things film, from dystopian films set in 2023, to even more dystopian films set in 2023, from The Purge, Anarchy, to The Tomorrow War. Uh, my name is Michael Brooks, and I'm here with my esteemed co-hosts, Sam Oliver and Bill King. Good morning. Good morning. That's the first time I've been ever, I think that's the first time I've ever been described described as esteemed. I really like it. It has a good ring to it. Well, Yeah, it's usually just like steaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, normally it's here's my steamed guest, Sam Oliver. That's nice. <laughs> this is our first episode of 2023, and we have a great show for you today. We've got uh, yeah, a whole host of new films we're going to be talking about. Uh, we've got our usual, uh, yeah, amongst our, so my intro doesn't work now because we're not doing the two new films. <laughs> God, I can't Sorry, improvise. Michael. We don't have a great show for you. <laughs> it's just a bog stand. <laughs> um, yeah, our, our years got off to a really good start. It took us about 10 minutes to actually get this all set up because various technical issues, and now Michael has to improvise. So it's all, good. Oh, it's all downhill from here. Um, but yes, we have decided, though, that uh, we're going to try and keep the show fresh. We're, this is our third year now that we're entering into, so we're introducing a new segment to the middle of uh, the episodes. We're going to see how this goes. We're going to be bringing you conversations with various film aficionados, so critics, film writers, filmmakers, cinema managers, film festival founders, all sorts of people, uh, about some of the films that mean the most to them. Uh, so joining us uh, as our inaugural guest, uh, we're pleased to have Sean McGreedy, who's a freelance film writer. He's written for uh, publications like BBC Culture, Empire, Fangoria, Little White Lies, etc, etc. So we'll be speaking to Sean a bit later on. So we're also going to be talking about uh, Glass Onion, the new uh, Knives Out film uh, that was the, the big Christmas film from Netflix uh, as well. So that's going to be the main film that we're talking about today. Before we get into that though, let's, let's just talk about some of the films that we are excited about uh, for, or we're looking forward to for 2023. Uh, so there's quite a few, actually. I was looking through some various articles. Uh, there's quite a few sort of big films coming out, uh, some smaller, more niche films that are quite exciting. Do you think this is the year we're finally going to see Killers of the Flower Moon, which was supposed to be out last year? Huh. God, no. I think this year we might finally see a trailer. I think he might he might grace us with that. And then maybe 2025... Early 2025 is my prediction. I'd be I'd be happy with a poster at this stage. I'd be happy with a poster. Are you telling me you're not happy with that same image that we keep getting everywhere of Leonardo <laughs> DiCaprio when he doesn't look like Leonardo DiCaprio? Are you saying you're sick of that one image that keeps getting repeated? Oh my god, is that Leonardo DiCaprio in that image? I hadn't, oh, well that changes things. That's blowing my mind. Gob- <laughs> Absolutely gobsmacked. Is that Leo? I think I've already mentioned it frequently on this podcast, but I'm really looking forward to Greta Gerwig's Barbie movie. Really excited about <laughs> yes. that. Um, the trailer, the, well, the teaser, I suppose, dropped with a great, fantastic 2001 A Space Odyssey reference. Mm. So I was already excited, but now that trailer made me even more excited. So it made me think, yeah, I saw that as well. It made me think this could either be brilliant or absolutely awful it's not going to be in the middle it's going to be one or the other oh yeah and i kind of like that binary i like that i could go into it i'm either going to be like that's going to be on sight and sounds next poll or i'll be like that was a trash waste of my time and i kind of i'm excited about that 
I hope that trailer was just like just shot as a trailer as well because they've stopped doing that, but it seemed like it's got no place in the film. And I hope that it was just like, yeah, let's yeah. just let's do a little uh, homage to Kubrick because why not? And uh, and it's just this you're not going to see in the film because that's a that's a trend I've missed. It's a fun idea, isn't it? Of being like, let's just do a trailer that has nothing to do with the film and just show you a good time. I'm into it. Yeah, good start. Good start on that one. I'm looking forward to, um, uh, well, Christopher Nolan plunging us into a nuclear apocalypse uh, for Oppenheimer. Because, uh, yeah, that's every... every. Oh. Tra- I think I'm going to stop watching trailers for it, but every every um, promo I've seen of that's just got me more and more excited. Cracking cast, great story. Andy's going to actually detonate a nuclear bomb, so that'll be fun. World, World War Three started by the man himself. <laughs> At least it'll be a visual spectacle. Um, that's, that's something... <laughs> Kicking and screaming into the apocalypse with Christopher Nolan. Uh, I'm looking forward to, and don't have long to wait, because it has just come out in cinemas, and we'll be talking about it on our next episode, but I've been looking forward to Mark Jenkins' Island's Men for a long time. Uh, so, yeah, not going to have long to wait for that. Uh, there's also Ridley Scott's Napoleon film, which may be quite quite intriguing. Yeah. Whacking Phoenix, that's Napoleon. Yeah. Speaking of Whacking Phoenix, nice link, Michael. Unintentional. Uh, the trailer just dropped for Ari Aster's newest film, Bo is Afraid. Mm. Ah, yes. It's got, yes. Um, again, Whacking Phoenix in it. And obviously, Ari Aster, Hereditary and Midsommar, two of my fave recent movies. And the trailer for Bo is Afraid looks insane. So I am thrilled for that. Yeah. Bill is afraid from watching that trailer. So, <laughs> yeah. There's also June 2 later in the year, apparently. Oh, yeah! Nice. Uh, there's a film called Cocaine Bear, which is coming out soon, which has been getting a lot of a lot of hype. Um, Speaking of bears, there's that Winnie the Pooh movie. Yeah, I was going to say, of Honey. course. Winnie the Pooh well. doesn't really, yeah. Uh, that's the one I'm most I also, to. when I was looking for films coming out in 2023, um, have either of you seen the Jason Statham huge shark movie, The Meg? No. Yes. Um, there's a sequel to that called The Meg 2, The Trench, um, which I didn't realise was being directed by Ben Wheatley of Kill List <laughs> Sightseers fame, is doing Goodness, The Meg 2. A, and I, very, The Meg 1 was a great... It's good film. Yeah, but The Meg 1 is a great film. trashy B-movie. So I'm kind of hoping that Ben Wheatley takes it in a really intense, um, almost kind of like needlessly horrific direction is my is my expectation for The Meg 2. Wow, I guess Ben Wheatley just wanted to do a big shark movie. Why not? Why not? It just feels like Ben Wheatley, they're just kind of going like, do you want to do this? And he's like, ah, why not? You know, I've got some free time. Maybe he wanted to meet Jason Statham, and he was just like, anything. I'll do anything to meet the Stath. Yeah, whatever he's in next, please not The Expendables 5. Please not The Expendables 5. <laughs> oh, sweet, it's Meg 2. Okay, I can deal with that. Sick. I love sharks. I'll do it. <laughs> right, okay, on this, our first episode of the year, we're going to be talking about Glass Onion. Uh with the subtitle that's, I don't know, is it the subtitle? A Knives Out Mystery, I don't know. So this is following the smash success of 2019's Knives Out, written and directed by Ryan Johnson, starring Daniel Craig as Master Detective Benoit Blanc. Um, and this was kind of making headlines a long time ago, so in March 2021, Netflix bought the rights to two sequels for a staggering and very precise $469 million dollars which is kind of insane money, isn't it, really? Um, and like the first film, this has got another ensemble cast. So we've got Edward Norton, you've got Janelle Monet, Catherine Hahn, Kate Hudson, Dave Bautista. And it is set during the COVID pandemic. Uh, billionaire co-founder of tech company Alpha, Miles Braun, played by Edward Norton, 
invites a group of his disruptor friends to his elaborate mansion on a private island in Greece, ostensibly to play a murder mystery game. But unplanned by him, Benoit Blanc has also been invited, as has his former partner and alpha co-founder, Andy, played by Janelle Monet. And soon enough, Blanc discovers that all the guests have their own motives for wanting to kill Miles, and the proceedings start to unravel fast from there. So... This had a limited theatrical release in November last year and was released on Netflix just before Christmas and it's done very, very well. And it made me think, uh, you know, do you remember we're old enough to, I'm sure, to all have poured through the Christmas radio times when it came out and be looking really excited for what the, you know, the Christmas Day film would be on terrestrial channels. It seems like they've they've totally given that up now, haven't they? And Netflix seems to have stolen, they've, they've just, they've taken the mantle of providing the the kind of Christmas Day film, haven't they? I mean, they did it last year with, with Don't Look Don't Look Up, whatever you thought about it. It was, you know, it was a, a big film that got a lot of attention. Uh, that's, yeah, it's funny the way that that is, they've just kind of muscled in massively on that territory for the Christmas Day film. That's that's really interesting. I didn't, I hadn't made that connection, but you're absolutely right. Like, they've almost perfectly released these huge movies that get a lot of, because Don't Look Up and this have had a lot of pre build up to them and a lot of like excitement building towards it to release it around Christmas when they know that people are going to be sitting at home going like oh do you want to just stick on a film I'd, yeah gosh aren't, aren't their marketing team great well done Netflix oh, well done good work good work I'm glad I'm glad they've done it because I missed I missed those um, you know those Christmas movies and then we've got something we can all talk about on January the 3rd it's like oh did you see what did you do oh, I watched Glass Onion with the family yeah what do you think you know that was nice that was nice that everyone had watched it unifies brings us all together which is what christmas should do so perfect absolutely um uh, okay so i'll go i'll go first um as this isn't an original thought as others have pointed out on social media the title of glass onion is instructive i suppose if you know the background to the song glass onion by the beatles from the white album and john lennon said that he wrote it as a parody of songs from their earlier albums like Sgt. Pepper's that have been over-evaluated, over-analysed and meanings read into them, which he claimed was of some annoyance to him. Um, and much like how this film is designed, it's, it's a parody of a whodunit, really, which has some fun at the expense of the audience's tendency to read too much into things and assign meanings where there are none. Uh, so, And we should say at the top, if you haven't seen this uh, and don't want any spoilers, skip ahead and don't uh, yeah come back to this episode when you have because we probably can't avoid talking about some of the some of the uh, plot spoilers uh, and I'm about to now so for example the murderer is hiding in plain sight isn't he um and it's almost too obvious so you sort of instinctively discount it early on and the missing piece of evidence is hiding in plain sight as well uh, and also as well the um the random slacker dude who pops up occasionally on the island the first time he appears, I remember saying to my wife, oh, he's, yeah, he's definitely going to have a part to play in this, isn't he? And gradually you realise, no, he's just part of the clever deconstruction of the whodunit that uh, Ryan Johnson's engaged in. Um, so, yeah, we I watched this, like I'm sure many others, on Christmas Day in the evening. And uh, given that, yeah, we've now got a, a seven-month-old baby, uh, this is the first time we've watched, my wife and I have watched a film all the way through in one go, so that was quite noticeable. Um, there were a lot of intro- interruptions uh, over the course of, you know, the runtime, so it made a two-hour, 20 film something more like four hours, which, so when I say this next, it should be taken with that pinch of salt, but it did feel that it was a bit too, I did feel it was a bit too long. 
I felt like it could have been a tight two hours rather than two hours 20. Um, and towards the end, I think the final third, it felt like uh, the supporting characters were perhaps beginning to tire a bit through a lack of depth in a way that I don't think happened with Knives Out, the first film. I thought all the characters there, if you think of uh, Tony Collette's character, um, Jamie Lee Curtis' character, they were they were great characters that you sort of I didn't tire of in the same way, perhaps. And even I felt sort of Daniel Craig as, as Blanc, I felt like there were times towards the end it's, it kind of felt like he was going through the motions a bit. I think that might have, I don't know, maybe it's just me. But it didn't feel quite as rich and developed as the first film. It did, yeah. So it, I did feel like The Last Onion was quite a shallower film. It was a, a lot of style over substance, a lot of kind of all surface and, and very little depth to it. But it was still good, solid entertainment. It was a good skewering of different types of, like the the personalities that are most prevalent at the moment in in our society. So like the idiot tech billionaire who might not be as smart as everyone thinks they are. I wonder who they could be lampooning there. Um, <clears throat> the, the controversialist who says what everyone is thinking. The alt right men's right men's rights blogger. The corrupt politician who's in the pocket of the billionaire. You know these are all you know common tropes uh, and very zeitgeist. Uh, and as we're recording this now, a good sort of two, three weeks after Christmas Day, I can't, I can't really remember too much through the sort of port and cheese haze that I watched this in. Uh, but I was, it was, it was just the right sort of film for Christmas Day viewing. There were lots of laugh out loud moments. I thought I particularly liked the moment when Je, uh, Janelle Monae's character smashes up the elaborate puzzle box that she's been sent. I thought that was a, a clever uh, device. No, it's good. Kate Hudson is is on great form as well. Uh, I th- you know I thought her line, like, "What is reality?" That was very very funny. Um, and yeah, Ryan Johnson's his direction is really good. A lot of the time, the shot composition is 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 really accomplished. It looks great. The set design is really impressive. And the twist, you know, as I said at the top, is it's obvious, but that's a sign of a good you know a good well crafted mystery. You know, the, the, there are enough twists to keep you locked in effectively. I don't think I'd rush to watch it back in the same way that I I did want to watch Knives Out a second time. But, you know, it's a good second effort. And, uh, yeah, it was good Christmas Day entertainment. Sam, what do you think? Uh, Port and Cheese Haze sounds really lovely. I feel like that was one thing that was missing from my um, seasonal time. I didn't have enough port and cheese. Just had a lot of sherry and chocolate, which I suppose is its own kind of haze to be in. It's very but... sweet. <laughs> I mean, that's probably why my teeth still hurt now. Um, so yeah, Glass Onion. Um, I worry that my haze is even longer than yours, Michael, because I watched this when it came out in the that little week it had in cinemas back in November. So this was, for me, quite a while ago, but the film has stayed with me, maybe because I also chose to see it without a seven-month-old occasionally interrupting my viewing, which uh, I can't deny was quite pleasant. So yeah, I think when Glass Onion when the sequels, the two and the three were announced on Netflix, I was super excited because I love, loved Knives Out. And I think the idea of just coming back to these Knives Out, Benoit Blanc investigates movies, I was super excited about and was really pleased with how much I enjoyed Glass Onion. I thought it's an absolute rollickingly good time. I think the way that it does the unexpected with these whodunit movies, um, I'm, probably less astute than a lot of film viewers. I feel like a lot of people I've heard had the same thought that you had, Michael, of they knew kind of where it was going right from the start. But 
every twist and turn that this film took took me by surprise, which probably says more about me than it does about the cleverness of the movie. But I was continually kept kind of on the edge of my seat with the kind of like fun and the intrigue and the mystery, which I found genuinely fun, intriguing and mysterious. Um, I got the same sense that the first one gave you of like the actors were all having a really fun time doing it. It feels like Ryan Johnson has again assembled a really fun ensemble of people that are just like, yeah, I'll be in a cool like whodunit movie. That'll be a good time. Um, Even to the point where you get the smallest of small cameos from someone like Ethan Hawke who turns up to spray some people in the mouth and then you never ever see him again in the rest of the movie. There's a real kind of just like sense of people having a fun time, which, you know, actors are supposed to be having fun, I suppose. So it's nice to see them kind of like having a great time. Um, And there's a lot of those cameos, isn't there? Yeah. A lot of nice little cameos. Serena Williams. Mm. The one that I didn't realise. Yo-Yo Ma. Yeah. The one that I didn't realise. And do you know the... On the hour, there's that thing that goes bong. The mm. voice of that bong is Joseph Gordon-Levitt. <laughs> Joseph Gordon-Levitt's in it, just going bong every now and then. Amazing. Um, but yeah, I think all of those characters, and you touch on it, Michael, the idea of like they're all playing these really specific archetypes, which does mean that they are kind of a bit broadly drawn at certain points. But I think the calibre of the actors that are playing these broad caricatures, Dave Batista, Catherine Hine, Kate Hudson, um, Edward Norton, the calibre of their performances elevates these kind of like potentially two-dimensional characters to the next level for me and I just really enjoyed seeing them having a really fun time um film obviously looks great I like that the kind of it's the complete opposite vibe of the first one obviously Knives Out the first one was a sumptuous sprawling gothic like country manner and this one is a very kind of like chic and hot and dusty kind of modern island getaway filled with lots of art and fancy drawing fancy drawings fancy sculptures and like a minimalist design that purposefully gives off that pretentious tech billionaire vibe it feels in the same way that i imagine a lot of like agatha christie mystery stories do this one feels like it's the same idea but taken somewhere completely different which i really enjoyed i really liked the kind of contemporary setting of it like at the start when you realize that it is during covid times i did cringe a little bit cuz that's so easily the sort of thing that could feel really like naff. But I thought the way that this film did that was really good and put it in a very specific place and time that it then kind of, that then gave the film a a real sense of place that um, I didn't think was necessarily missing from the first one, but I thought was very good in this one. And I think it was used quite effectively. So the scene where they first turn up on the dock and they're all wearing masks, it was a very quick and effective kind of way of indicating what their character types were, kind of seeing Kate Hudson obviously wearing that clear mask, Dave Batista not wearing one, and um, Catherine Hahn's character having a very, you know, very, what's the word, very medical kind of one. It gives you this nice time and place indicator, but also an indicator of their character archetypes as well. Daniel Craig, I think, is fantastic as Benoit Blanc. It almost feels like I'll happily watch him do these movies until he gets bored of them. Like, if he wants to do them for the rest of his life, I'll be there for him every single time. Um yeah, just partic- particular faves for me, acting one, Janelle Monet, Catherine Hahn, and Dave Batista. I thought, well, really like magnetic, really in- interesting to watch. It felt like they really understood the brief and played it to an absolute T. Um, yeah, j- these this movie I was really, really into, and I'm more than happy for these movies to continue going for as long as Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig want to make them. I think my final thing to leave on... We've all kind of established, especially with the latest series of films, 
that the Marvel Cinematic Universe is dead. Or to quote longtime listener Lou Humble, the Marvel films are, quote, a parcel of shite. So I think if the Marvel Cinematic Universe is dead, I say, let it die, but long live the Knives Out Cinematic Universe. That's what I want to... That's the universe that's worth my time right now. But yeah, absolutely loved this. And I haven't revisited it. I haven't revisited the first one. And I kind of feel like I might leave it that way. It's just this beautiful November haze on an island with Daniel Craig, which was a nice time. Very good. Bill, what do you think? Um, yeah, I like. I, I, I agree with Sam. I like to see um, Benoit Blanc doing doing all the homages to classic whodunits. Because I was thinking about it. And I think Ryan Johnson has talked about it. We've done the mansion now. That's a classic whodunit setting. We've done the the island uh, of the rich recluse. That's a classic whodunit setting. So what's next? Maybe a train, a uh, boat ride down a African river. You know, something something like that. A storm. There's often there's often characters brought together in a storm, isn't there? In a in a in a lonely location. So yeah, I'd, I'd like to see him do all of the pastiches of the uh, of the the classic whodunits. Um, yeah, I I I agree um, with you two really. I, yeah, the central idea: a glass onion is a really obvious, stupid thing, and that was the central conceit of the film. I think. There's been backlash of people just going, oh, it's a, it's a silly film. It's a stupid film. Like the central conceit is stupid. I think that was the point Ryan Johnson's trying to make. It was like, yeah, the, sometimes murders are just stupid and there's no over overriding dark conspiracy. It is just this selfish person killing people in a not very clever way. Um and and yeah, I was I, I I think if you treat it as like a fun fairground ride and don't don't try and look for meaning or um, try and unravel it as you're going, just just enjoy it. I think you will. Um, and and I did for me. I disagree with you, Mike. I thought it breezed by, but then I didn't have a kid. I was tending to for four hours. I was just just going up to get more cheese and pork, which which did make it take four hours for me as well. But that's maybe why it breezed by. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I don't agree on that. Also, I disagree with you, Sam, is I hated the cameos. That's the only thing I really disliked about the film. I was just about there. Really? Yeah, I, I, lo- I loved it when I saw Angela Lansbury uh, when she was doing like the Zoom call with um, with Benoit Blanc because, you know, she's she is whodunit royalty or she was, you know, a, uh, rest in peace but I, I really didn't like it when you're at Kate Hudson's party and all the celebs were turning up and I kind of and I lost it when Serena Williams just randomly so I just it just totally took me out of it. it I know what you're saying about you want to know characters having a good time but just to quickly diverse it's the difference for me between Ocean's Eleven which I loved because that was all big actors having a good time. But then Ocean 12 came out and there was so many shitty cameos that came in, which just felt like I was watching people and their mates making a film. You know, it was like um, calling Nurse Me Out. What about Hugh Grant? I was just, I was just like, Ugh. Yeah, even even <laughs> Hugh Grant, I was like, if he became a bigger character in it, it'd have been more fun. And maybe he will in future installments and that'd be good. You know, maybe it's Benoit Blanc and his partner, Hugh, going off on a train ride across Siberia or something, you know, that, that'll be the second book in this. It just felt gratuitous. Oh my gosh. That sounds I'd watch magical. it. I'd watch that. That's the, that's the film I want to see. would watch that, but <laughs> yeah. it just felt gratuitous and it took me out of it. And I, I totally get that, but like, I completely get that. And as it was happening, I was like, I could see how somebody would find these kind of a bit arduous and a bit gratuitous, but I think because the whole film centers around this kind of like tech billionaire and people that are like this disruptors and these like pretentiously influencer type characters, I think that almost kind of like fed into that more of the idea of like needless celebrity endorsement. I know obviously that wasn't really what was happening, but 
I think I, as I was seeing it, I was like, I really like this, but I can totally imagine someone not liking it. So I get it. Yeah, I think I think it goes one or two ways, doesn't it? I mean, yeah, it got it, uh, people I was watching with, with it got laughs and oh, so, you know, it, and and yeah, it does again. The the whole problem with trying to critique this film is I do, and I, I'm loath to often do this to give people the, the, the filmmakers the benefit of the doubt, but I do feel. And I think the title proves it, as you've just said about the Beatles song, Mike, is I do think Ryan Johnson knows what he was doing in in taking the mick out of all of this and making it so, so you know, vacuous and, and empty and, and stupid with this veneer of of intelligence, which is Elon Musk. Um, but um, so, so yeah, that all works. Um, the, the cast were all really entertaining, as you say. The, the characters were completely one-dimensional, again, probably on purpose, but because the actors were so charismatic, big shout-out to my boy Dave Bautista, who continues to to do great work, um, it elevated them. Also, it made me want Kate Hudson to be in more, because she's class, and she's got such good comic timing. You know, I, I've, I've, I loved her in um, Almost Famous, and I loved her in... Um, in uh, uh, you know the Matthew McConaughey runs with the, with those, uh, but she's just not in enough for me. Um, but, but she was great. Daniel Craig was just having a riot. He looked like he was having a really good time, and you know, you, there's been this level of him that he might have been a bit miserable in the latest Bonds, and he wasn't really enjoying them. It was nice to see him just just chewing scenery. Um, that was really fun. And and big shout out to Edward Norton as well, because he was just such a prick. Such a prick in this film. And uh, so much so that every time I like see him now on Twitter or anything coming up, it just makes me think, oh, what a dick. But I don't think he is a dick, you know, and I like a load of his work. So that's that's hopefully doesn't get typecast by that. Um, so yeah, I, 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 I enjoyed it. Um, I don't think it was as good as Knives Out, but I think it was a, a good addition to the the canon and I'd, yeah, happy, happy to see more of uh, of Ryan Johnson and Daniel Craig solving solving murders. I kind of feel like I almost now want these films to just go on forever, with the acknowledgement that like there's get like some Knives Out four. I might be like, eh, that wasn't great, but at least Knives Out one, two, and three were good. I kind of feel like I'm happy to go for like the law of averages <laughs> yeah. and for there to be like, do you know how there's like ten Friday the Thirteenth movies and maybe like four of them are genuinely like good fun to watch. I'm happy for that to happen with Knives Out. Knives Out can just go on forever and ever until Daniel Craig is Angela Lansbury old. And you'll just there'll be a law of averages of like, oh you should watch six but avoid seven and eight. Like they're not particularly good. But then nine, surprisingly great. I'm happy for it. Well there we go, Glass Onion. Uh, I'm sure uh, everyone will have most people will probably have seen it already who are listening to this and will have their own thoughts. But there we go. Strong praise from uh, the Creaky Chair panel. Very good Christmas film. So at this point in the episode, uh, we want to bring you the first instalment of a new feature. Uh, This is what we're calling the Make Believe Movie House. Uh, This is where we're going to be doing short conversations with various guests, people who are passionate cineasts. And we are very pleased that our first such guest is Sean McGeady. He's a freelance film writer. He's based in London. Uh, he was written for the likes of BBC Culture, Time Out, Little White Lies, Fangoria, The Quietus, Empire Magazine. And uh, he wrote a brilliant piece, which you should check out uh, at the end of last year for The Quietus, um, about the cult 70s BBC ghost film, The Stone Tape, which uh, has just celebrated its 50th anniversary. So 
yeah, definitely urge you to go and check that out. Sean, thank you very much for joining us and being our canary in the coal mine on this, our first, <laughs> our, our first instalment. Before we get into talking about all things film, I just ask, do you, so do you have a, a cinema that is particularly close to your heart? Oh, you're God. in London. Is there is there a London cinema that you tend to, that is where you, you know you're going to have a good time? If, if I there. had a particularly strong arm, I could chuck a rock from my the windows of my flat and hit any number of cinemas. I, I, I go to the castle in Homerton quite often. I go to the Prince Charles a lot. I go to the BFI a lot. I go to the Rio cinema. That's my closest. I go there a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, Hackney and Finsbury Park, picture houses now and again, the, the view in Islington, you know, the, you know, the independence are yeah. where I spend most of my time. But if I want to catch Megan, for example, which I haven't yet, but I want to see that in like a sticky, sticky view or something on a Friday or Saturday night. Okay. You're walking through the lobby. What snacks are you getting? What snacks am I? I'm not. I'm not. I'm not getting snacks. You're not. I've. Uh, I've kind of almost stopped drinking at cinemas as well. As as quite. I know this, this is very boring listening for, uh, for podcast listening, <laughs> but uh, I, I think I kind of. Tripped. Well, it's January. It's, it's January. January. So I, I, I recommend if if you spend too much and or drink too much, trick your brain into thinking you just you, you don't need that pint at the cinema. Get get a soft drink. Mm. Take some water. Are you someone who gets in line for all the ads and the trailers, or do you rock up just in time and one of those people, everyone has to get up in the row? Oh, no. I, the, the prospect of arriving to a cinema late makes me incredibly anxious. So <laughs> I, I get there. I'm, I'm on time, if not a little bit early. Patiently sit through and watch all, all the ads. Get annoyed if people talk through the ads, because, you know, I'm trying to experience this. <laughs> this is part of my... I paid money to see all this as well. It's not just... For me, it's the whole entire cinema experience, like from half an hour before to long after the credits end. I'm not just rocking up to see a film and then blowing out the second uh, mm. that needle drop hits and the end credits come on. I want to I want to soak it in start to finish. Good man. And do you do you have a position preference in the auditorium? Any particular row or position you tend to favour? Yep. Front and centre. Right. Um, maximum leg room. Minimal opposition to immersion. I like to maximise the potential for immersion with everything I see. And I figure the closer I am to the screen... It's not always great because it depends on the rake of the cinema and the height of the screen. Mm. But the closer I am to the screen, the fewer heads in my way and the fewer people I might hear rustling, talking, whatever. So I, I figure just just get as close as possible. Excellent. Excellent. Right. Let's uh, let's talk about some films then. So first question I've got for you, Sean. What's the best new film that you've seen recently? Um, I saw Ennis Main for the second time uh, a couple of nights ago. Mark Jenkin and uh, his partner, who's the lead in the film, Mary Woodvine, they were at the the castle in Homerton for a Q&A, part of their uh, kind of nationwide um, Q&A tour that they've been on. And the film probably, it plays wonderfully the second time around. I don't want to say too much because I know you're going to see it after this chat, but it's it strikes me as, it, it's quite an ambient movie. And Bait Jenkins kind of breakthrough feature film. It's not an ambient movie, you know, it's got it's got a plot, uh, it's got a narrative, it's got all the things that, are, you know, recognisably make up a movie. Ennis Man doesn't necessarily have a lot of those, you know, it's, it's, it's more abstract, it's more elliptical in its editing and in its narrative. Because it, our, our, uh, our kind of relationship goes back to music, basically, that's that's how we first mm-hmm. met. Um, yeah. And Ennis Man has something of, of, of an ambient album about it. You know, Jenkins does kind of ambient drone, drone-inspired scores, and there's something about Ennis Main that is unsettling and quite 
soothing. Um, in its early going, especially, it features lots of sh shots of just waves and the, the Cornish landscape and birds and bees, birds in flight, bees on flowers, stuff like that, which isn't just scene setting. Like for me, it's important to what the movie's about with these themes of kind of death and rejuvenation and ghosts of a land and a culture that kind of still exist and keep coming back and uh, cycles of, of nourishment in the, in the natural world. But these scenes set it up as this really nice, soothing movie that it looks like it could have been a 1970s ad for the Cornish tourist board. Right. But then it's all that stuff's interspersed with these <laughs> strange shots of Mary Woodvine's character, just really intense close-ups of her looking straight to camera or looking at something off camera that we might not be privy to. And it just casts all of that nice stuff in a, in a strange light. Like the, the landscape's beautiful, but not, not, not quite right necessarily because who's to say what's right in our world, never mind that world, the world of the movie. Yeah. But um, it's a strange yeah. film in many ways. And ambient music's strange in many ways. Now, we can't quite identify what it is. It's, you know, there often isn't a backbeat. There isn't a narrative spine to this movie. It reminds me a lot of kind of, and not just because Apex Twin is Cornish as well, but Selected Ambient Works Volume 2 and the way that album... Mm almost hints at its own narrative at times with the way the tracks change in mood from one to the other. It strikes me as an ambient movie in the way that I think Mandy is a drone metal movie. <laughs> yeah. It's like a, a Sun album Yeah. If, if it had a narrative and characters. You know, the, the texture of the movie, the sound of the movie. Ennis Main feels like that to me, and it's... it's Excellent. Well, I'm... My appetite is thoroughly whetted for that, yeah, as you say. And we're, we're going to be talking about it on the podcast uh, on our next episode. Uh, so, yeah, really looking forward to that. I see, yeah, so you've got a piece uh, with Mark Jenkins coming out in the Quietus uh, very shortly, uh, which we'll link to. And he's been doing, have you been seeing, he's been doing quite a lot of, uh, he's curated a season, hasn't he, at the BFI, which I've not been able to get to, but it looks brilliant. I could go to every single one of them, <laughs> including the stone tape. Yes, he did. That's been and gone, unfortunately. But I think he showed yeah. that also with Derek Jarman's um, A Journey to Avebury, maybe, which is a short film mm. that Jarman made on Super 8 about the um, Avebury Standing Stones, which is a, a beautiful short in its own right. But yeah, all the films part of that season are fantastic. I saw the uh, Ben Rivers film Two Years at Sea at the BFI recently with Mark mm. and Ben Rivers in conversation afterwards, and that was fantastic. Yeah, amazing example of slow cinema and cinema that kind of asks everything and yet very little from the viewer at the same time. Let's move on. A film, what is a film that you love that is pure trash? And when I was coming up with these questions, I thought, yeah, you're definitely going to have a lot to say about this because I remember following you on Twitter and seeing during COVID, you and your partner doing uh, pl plunging into basically basement, bargain basement DVDs, basically, weren't you? Uh, and reviewing the trashiest of the trash films. So I'm sure this is entirely up your street. <laughs> yeah, so there's kind of no place I'd rather be than in a charity shop or uh, a branch of CEX just just looking at, at shit, basically. Um, I, 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 think it's, I think it's a very similar experience to kind of vinyl crate digging, you know, looking for gems where often there aren't any because most charity shops have eight copies of like Armageddon and Rush Hour 2 or something. And it's, it's very rare you find something... I mean, you can find like actual critically acclaimed gems in there as well, but I'm less interested in that stuff, frankly. I'm looking for 
direct-to-video action movies from the mid-90s. That's my flavour. There are a lot of flavours of trash, you know? I think the term trash is quite nebulous. Um, I don't... When I use the word trash, I don't think of it as a descriptive quality, necessarily. I think of it as a kind of... A category of film in and of itself. And um, the boundaries get quite blurry. I, I don't think all trash films are bad, and I don't think all bad films are trash. I think it's it's its own distinct flavour of film. And I don't think it's confined to like the 60s or the 70s, for example, either. There's, there's plenty of trash that comes out in cinemas today. I think the Fast and Furious franchise, is, that's trash. Um, and it's great, but, it, but it's trash. I think Black Swan is also a film that was seen as the, this really acclaimed. I think it's trash. I think it's pure trash. And I think that's something to be celebrated. I don't think that's something we should ever shy away from. I don't think a trash movie is a, a failed movie necessarily. Um, but yeah, it's it's mid-90s direct-to-video stuff. That's my favourite. Um, I think that was an era of kind of a lot of democratisation of filmmaking was going on around that time. So you had kind of home video was was quite recent. So a lot of filmmakers were making, you know, were, were free to make cheaper films shot on video at this point. Um, so you get this really shitty video look to a lot of these films, this really awful kind of scan lines and, and grain, and it's only 4.3, super boxy. It just, it, they look like shit. They're awful. <laughs> you also had um, MIDI was quite new then. So I guess there were a lot of, um, you know, people had access to orchestras suddenly that were in their, on their desktop. And, and, and you, if you know what you're doing with MIDI, you can absolutely make a MIDI orchestra. Mm. MIDI orchestral score sound indistinguishable from the real thing. But the technology was quite new then, and I guess it was done quickly and on the cheap. And these, these scores sound awful. And you can tell it's MIDI within seconds, but there's something quite comforting about that. Um, <laughs> something quite comforting about how bad these films look and sound. <laughs> Because nobody, nobody ever sets out to make a bad film. I think that's what's also important to remember about trash. Like everybody's always trying, and there's <laughs> there's a sense of comfort and camaraderie that comes certainly for me in watching films that never hit those heights. You know, I can tell people are trying, and and obviously you respect any effort. Like I, I never want to yeah. laugh at the film necessarily, but I, I I do take joy in lesser efforts or from finding quality within films that aren't particularly good um so that that thread you were talking about uh which was just a twitter thread that i will get back to because god i've got a lot that i i need to watch but yeah the, the stuff i pulled out from that were movies like there's a movie called um hired to kill and oliver reed is in this movie and oliver reed on his day i think he's genuinely one of the greatest actors of all time i think he's an incredible actor watch um Watch Women in Love if, oh, yeah. if you've ever thought that Oliver Reed is purely like a drunken lout, which which he was, and gave a lot of bad performances and a lot of bad films. I think he's genuinely amazing when he's when he's you know on his game. Um, in this, he's not. He plays <laughs> like I think some sort of South American tyrant that has uh, imprisoned someone, maybe a revolutionary leader. I I. I I'm not quite clear on the details. One, because I haven't seen it in a while. And two, because the film isn't, you know, <laughs> very forthcoming with its details either. It's absurd and it's it's problematic. It's offensive. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's good, but I get a great deal of enjoyment out of that, precisely that kind of stupid film. The, and these films, they're the kind of kind of mid-action, uh, sorry, mid 
budget action films that don't really exist anymore. They've been kind of rendered extinct by just the way the industry's gone, the way blockbuster filmmaking's gone. You don't get films of this quality, and there's probably a good reason for that, but you don't get films of this quality and of this uh, flavour again. I go back to that word, flavour. There's a certain flavour that um, I always look for in films, and I don't find it in many films other than films with bad MIDI scores from 1995. (laughs) Brilliant. Okay, well, yeah. Look out for Hired to Kill then in your local CEX. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so moving on quite nicely then. Tell us about your favourite and least favourite film genres or or sub-genres then. What else do you go to? So I guess guess it overlaps with trash, but I like um, melt movies, which are movies in which people melt. Uh, unsurprisingly, there aren't there aren't a great many melt movies, and that you know they don't come around often. How many people need to melt in a to, for it to be a melt movie? I think I think only one really, but it needs to be a good melting. Like it can't be okay. it can't be a half-assed melting. You need to see like everything come off, <laughs> and you, you get movies where you know like Indiana Jones and the, yeah, and the first melting, and you I, I wouldn't call that a melt movie. I think the melt needs to be integral to the plot somehow so there's a movie from 87 i think called street trash which is again very offensive very dodgy movie but a shitload of people melt in that movie Uh, if you want a lot of like melt for your money i think that's the one um the incredible melting man is another interesting one that was um a movie i think that movie was originally written as a comedy and then changed during production to make it more dramatic but they left some of the stuff that was meant to be comedic in. So it's this really strange blend of uh, really gross-out, trashy comedy and an attempted serious movie about... Uh, it's about, like, a, an astronaut who returns from a space mission with some sort of... Yeah, he's melting for some reason. <laughs> what more do you need to know? Would the snowman count as a melt movie? Or is that not, no. Sorry. It's terrible Possibly. Show. I mean, I think... Arguably, the uh, the Wizard of Oz might be one of the first yeah. melt movies, um, or maybe a proto melt movie, <laughs> because in that the melt I think was done with I think it was like a, a lift, like a little elevator, and some literally smoke and mirrors. Whereas the melt movies of the eighties, for example, are you know it's pretty intense physical effects. Um, the Devil's Reign is another one that it it. it withholds its melting for quite a long time but when the, the devil's reign does eventually come a, a lot of people melt the melting sequence in that movie goes on for about 10 minutes and wow. uh, i think that was john travolta's first ever role really and it's i don't think he has any lines he's just a background extra basically one of the kind of one of the um kind of robed cult figures in the movie but you do get a yeah. close-up of his of his face going going full melt so if, if you don't <laughs> oh, like John Travolta, or if you do, I think I think it's reason enough to, to, to pay a visit to the Devil's Road. <laughs> Brilliant. And least favourite, what you just can't stand, it just doesn't matter what film it is or who's in it, the genre is just, nah, it's not for you. I, I don't know if I'd say anything, you know? I mean, and I don't think anyone can with any authenticity because like genres are just labels, aren't they, mm. that don't necessarily accommodate everything even within what's supposed to be part of that genre so uh, one of my great loves is westerns and a lot of people say they don't like westerns but i don't i don't think that's the case i think they just haven't seen a western that they like because westerns are 
any film genre encompasses so much. Um, people say they don't like rom-coms, but what they mean is they don't like a specific flavour of kind of 90s rom-com, for example. But like screwball comedies from the mm. 40s are very different to that. They feel like completely different movies, but they still have the same heart. They still follow a lot of the same tropes. You, you need to watch enough of any given genre to find something within it that you like. There are probably genres for which I haven't found that yet, but I know if I persevere, I will. You know, I'm not. I'm not in a rush to, but they are out there. Hallmark Christmas movies, maybe. I mean, I mean, that's you're making a pretty strong case there. <laughs> no, but it's yes. You, you know, your point is very good. Is very astute. Okay, you're organising a film festival. What double bill would you schedule to blow people's minds? Everyone always goes on about the legendary Wicker Man. Don't look now. Double bill. But is what would you be able to put together uh, that would that would surprise people? And also, what's the perfect midnight movie to end on a high? Double bills. Um, I make a lot of lists on Letterboxd. I'm the type of person I I, I can't help but look for and find completely in, in, insubstantial connections between the films that I watch. So I make an obscene amount of lists, some of which get quite granular. I've got lists for like movies that feature dogs, which, of which there are many. I've got lists for movies that feature characters drinking milk, of which there aren't very many. But I just, whenever I see more than one movie that features the same kind of thing, it's like, bang, new list. Um, so I was looking at these lists, and I feel like it's it's not just double bills I'd want to program. It's I I I'd want to do endless like marathons, festivals, seasons, and I, and I'd like to make these kind of maybe experiential, like contextual. Um, experiences as well not like uh, that whose name we shouldn't mention Secret Cinema maybe not like that but Mm -hmm. for example films that feature gambling scenes I think are quite fascinating I'm I'm interested in how the depiction of gambling changes from film to film and decade to decade Um, so you could do a run of films featuring gambling maybe put the festival on in a casino maybe so you've got live tables with gambling going on around you while you sit and like watch the film and you could show stuff like um i mean stuff like snake eyes and casino are the the obvious ones but you've also got um like a funny girl with barbara streisand has a brilliant poker scene on the boat and the movie only needs one scene for it to qualify in this ridiculous fantasy festival (laughs) but um funny girl's a great one there's a 1973 film Japanese film called Sex and Fury, which has got some unbelievable stuff in it, including gambling scenes. There's um, Waking Fright, yeah, which is yeah, extremely grimy at the best of times, but the gambling yeah. in that movie is especially bleak. Horrifying, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> It'd be a pretty bleak festival, actually, this one. It's not the best one to start on. <laughs> train scenes as well, I'm a big fan of. Um, train's a great setting for a, a million reasons. Maybe we could do like some sort of Trans-Siberian Express situation where you get the train from one side of deep Europe to the other. Uh, and we could show Shanghai Express and Snowpiercer, obviously. But then um, there's a, a Zapata Western film, which are Westerns that take place during the Mexican Revolution. It's a film called uh, A Bullet to the General, which has got this amazing opening train sequence where a munitions train gets ambushed by uh, revolutionaries. And there, there are tons of westerns that could qualify for this as well. Um, you could argue that High Noon, which doesn't take place on a train, but the train represents this kind of 
coming threat, right? Um, yeah, yeah. And that's part of what I love about Westerns anyway, is that the, the trains, this quite mechanically elegant way of um, representing both the concept of manifest destiny as well as the incoming threat of civilization that would kind of undo or at least supersede that kind of pioneer way of life. So a train in a Western and in most films is often much more than just a train. Um, it gets to represent uh, different ways of life, the class in Snowpiercer. It's really interesting to look at, you know, the, the, the scenery is always moving when the, the, the film or a scene takes place on a vehicle of some description. Um, it's also a confined space where you get to unleash hell in all manner of ways. <laughs> you need to get to the uh, film festival curation business for sure. Yeah, I'd be interested in it. Um, I, I fear I'm I'm too long in the tooth and it's a bit late to be switching careers. But if I could start again, I think film programming is definitely something I'd be interested in going into. And what's have you got a perfect midnight movie? What would you what would you put on right at the end end of the night? I don't know which festival this would fit into but um perhaps hard target john woo's hard target which is just ab- like absolutely top tier b movie um mm. or there's a frank henenlotter film called frank and hooker which again pretty offensive pretty sleazy but um <laughs> that's kind of my thing frank and hooker i think is my favorite henenlotter it's one of my favorite kind of trash sleaze movies in general um maybe a new york festival for that film set in new york because that's probably my favourite depiction of that city. Well, Sean, thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's been a real pleasure to talk through a whole load of fascinating films. Um, I'm sure I'm not going to be the only person who has never heard of the melt subgenre, uh, but I will now be looking out for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so thank you very much, Sean McGeady. Um, look out for uh, what Sean's writing, and uh, we're going to be posting a link to, uh, to Sean's work when this episode goes out. Thank you very much, Sean. Thanks, Matt. Cheers. Right, so now we're going to talk about what else we've been watching over the last few weeks. Um, and I am going to go first. So as as I trailed on uh, our favourites of the last year, before, I'm going to talk about After Sun, which is the debut film by director Charlotte Wells, uh it's it's had tremendous accolades this film uh it was i think among others sight and sounds best film of the last year i can really see why and i saw this at the cinema just before christmas and it had a profound impact on me i was thinking about it for days afterwards and i haven't really stopped thinking about it since um it is really very very powerful and i will try and avoid spoilers because i do hope uh, if people listening uh, uh haven't uh, caught this film yet, uh, you will go and seek it out. Um, so it stars Paul Mescal, uh, who you may know from Normal People. This is his first leading film role. Uh, and 11-year-old Frankie Corio. They play uh, father and daughter Callum and Sophie on a package holiday in a Turkish hotel resort. It's set sort of sometime in the early noughties, and it's this fairly standard Brits abroad style holiday. You know, the hotel's having construction work done and they spend their days lounging by the hotel pool or going on a diving trip or watching the holiday reps doing the Macarena as their evening entertainment. It's, it's that sort of thing. Uh, and we, you know, we understand, as the audience, we understand and recognise that Callum is a, a good father and his relationship with Sophie is very close. Uh, but as the film goes on, we see more of 
the dark cloud that seems to be hanging over Callum, and we realise that he's kind of struggling to cope mentally. Uh, we also learn that, as you know, we learn this as the adult Sophie is also revisiting her memories of the holiday and seeing her father again from the vantage point of, of much time having gone by, and uh, yeah, her having gone from grown from a girl sort of on the cusp of being a teenager, she's on this holiday to being a, a woman the same age as her father. So this is as strong a debut film as any I can remember. I mean, if this is what Charlotte Wells is doing now, I think she's in her early to mid-30s, uh, it's so exciting to think that of the career that she might well have ahead of her. Um, I've seen After Sun twice now. I watched it again the other night. And I'm convinced that she's succeeded in capturing on film the way in which, better than any film I think I can, I can remember, she's captured the way in which your memories are formed and that strange place that they often occupy between reality and imagination and how, you know, time sort of tends to give you a new perspective on, on, on what happened. Yeah. So how, and how, you know, so how memories can be shifted by time. And I don't, I don't want to give too much away, I think, but it's a film that's full of clues and things that are kind of seem incidental at the time, but I think you only pick up on a second viewing. I think it's, it's ripe for different interpretations of, of, of like what the ending precisely means. And there's all sorts of speculation I've seen about what happens to Callum. Um, I'm fairly clear in my own mind what I think the film is telling us happens to him. Uh, but it's clear that, you know, from what I've read into that, you know, there's other people who have different interpretations as well. So I think it, it leaves it open for that. I think Wells's direction is excellent. Some of the shots are so artfully composed. I mean, the, and the edits between the two different images and the way that they fade into each other is so well done. Like the, the and the color palettes are so exquisite. There's all these azure blues and this heat haze, and there's wonderful shots of like hang gliders floating upside down in the reflections of, of a pool surface. It's just just brilliant. Uh, but really, the film kind of hangs on the two performances. Mescal and Corio are fantastic. They're so natural together. There's such effortless chemistry between them. You really do believe you're watching a, a father and daughter. Frankie Corio is this newcomer. I mean, she has such charm. She's such a, I'm sure she'll a, a talent to watch uh, in the future. And the way Paul Mescal handles the complexities of his character is equally really, really good. I mean, we realise that, you know, he's putting on a brave face for Sophie whilst sort of hurting inside and he conveys that really well and the film's final five minutes i think is one of the f the best endings of a film i've seen in a long while i think it's it's so emotional it packs such a hefty punch and it it features a song that is i'm not going to say what it is but it's one of the most overplayed songs and it shouldn't work in the setting but it really does and i guarantee you'll never hear this song again without thinking back to its use here. It's just absolutely perfect. Uh, so yeah, I, I just think it After Sun is magnificent. I think its reputation will only grow over the next ten over the next few years. I think it'll almost certainly be in, in Sight and Sounds top one hundred films of all time in the next in ten years' time. I think it should be an awards contender. It probably won't be because it is such a small kind of indie film, but it deserves all the hype and praise it's been receiving. And I left the cinema sort of devastated but also thinking like this is why i'm so so passionate about film it's why we sort of yeah we all do this and it's it's because of films like this and how great it is that new new talent is coming out there making films like this i mean so yeah i can't just can't sing its praises hardly enough so i urge everyone to go and see it if you haven't seen it already i think it is still it's getting a sort of more extended cinema run because of all the praise it's been getting but it's also on the movie platform
And Sam, I believe you've seen this as well. Yeah, um, literally um, listening to you just... So this is a film that, similar to you, Michael, has been on my mind since watching it. And every now and again, I just catch myself thinking about something and either feeling like happy, the height of happiness or the lows of sadness. And hearing you talk about it just then genuinely brought a little bit of a lump to my throat. So effective is this film's kind of like staying power. I think like there's loads of films um, that have made me kind of cry or made me feel like sad whilst watching them. But After Sun is in a list of like a mercifully short list, might I add, of films that like I can think about after they've finished and they like, I was a state during the credits of this movie. I, I couldn't pull myself together for the longest time. And I'm after I watched it on movie, and after on movie, they have just a picture from the film, and it's that beautiful shot, like this really beautiful kind of, like you said, heat hazy picture of them both. And I had to turn the TV off because just looking at it set me off again. Um, it's it's an absolute, you're right, an absolutely sensational movie. And the things that it does really well is that I, as the film kind of progresses, I found myself kind of like waiting for you expect there to be like a big moment where everything suddenly explodes and the film doesn't do that but that explosion happens to you afterwards it happened to me the more I think about it because you're kind of there's a moment in the middle ish where you're like okay this is going to be the big catalyst this is going to be the thing but then that isn't and the way it kind of plays with your expectations of what should be happening and what shouldn't be happening just makes it all the more powerful it's so understated it's so beautiful it's so realistic and Oh, yeah. Actually, genuinely talking about it is making me feel a bit fizzy, yeah. is the word I'm looking for here. Um, Paul Mescal, like, I've I watched Normal People, and I think he's pretty, he's he's really good in Normal People and does a very, a genuinely, like, incredible performance in this. He's so stoic and so removed, but also so present and loving and caring. He's everything. And the way that he does this, it's a masterclass performance from both. Um, Sophie and from Callum, they're both absolutely fantastic. And yeah, it it won't it won't leave my brain. And that's what the best films do. The stay the staying power of this is amazing. And yeah, I don't feel strong enough to rewatch it, but I'm quite keen to rewatch it at some point because I feel like it's a film that will ultimately reward repeat viewings. Because mm. looking back on it, there's certain scenes that I'm like, oh, uh, uh, oh, oh, and I think watching it again, if I can muster the strength to do it I think will be a very rewarding experience but yeah you're absolutely right sensational bit of film listeners if you can't tell they're both crying (laughs) yeah Michael's going to do some really creative edits here where it doesn't sound like we were absolutely beefing our eyes out in between talking about this movie well it's one of those films that I think the only time I've seen it uh, before in the cinema was when it was um, with 12 years a slave I remember seeing that in the cinema and just that when you realise that the credits are rolling and no oh. one is getting up to leave because everyone's just get, gathering themselves. Yeah. And <laughs> it was that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. I, I watched it at home with Sarah and we both were just sitting watching the credits as I was like very aware that I was I was beefing quite heavily. And then luckily kind of like just slowly turned to Sarah and she was also welling up. And I was like, okay, good. You you do have a soul. That's nice to say. Good, good to... <laughs> Even our cat, even Safty, was looking pretty sad about it as well. So you know, but again, like, but it's, but that's the thing is, like, it's not just sad; it's also like happy. It's it's happiness and sadness. Yeah, it's life affirming as well. It's isn't just it? so. 
I don't know. It's a very, very pretentious thing to say, but I may as well end on this very pretentious thought. But like, it is a microcosm of like actual human existence and actual life being lived. So it's got all the highs, it's got the lows, it's got the laughs, it's got the sadness. It's oh, oh, makes me feel every feeling all at once. Oh, <laughs> yes. Um, maybe it builds. You want to go next? Pull us out of the uh, <laughs> out of this. Well, I'll just, I'll just say if I'm if I'm not on the next podcast, it's because I've watched After Sun <laughs> and I just can't handle the emotion, and I've just had to had to just go away and gather myself because <laughs> you two are usually a bit more stoic than me, so <laughs> I think I'd be in bits. But um, no, that that sounds that sounds pretty wonderful, and it's it's one of those films that I don't think many people I know have seen it, but everyone that has has just said you you have to you have to experience it. It's quite magical, so I will be seeking that out once I feel. <laughs> Yeah, enough. Bill. For, for our own sake, please do it when you're feeling strong, because, <laughs> dear God, I won't. I won't watch it hungover uh, no. on a Monday. Then that's fine. Yeah, <laughs> yeah really. The, when you're in your strongest mental and physical state. <laughs> so, uh, well, yeah. To, to to bring us out of this, I, I I went for a bit more of a, a sort of a B movie schlocky kind of kind of film. Let's 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 get back to what we know, guys. Um, I went for the menu, um, which is directed <laughs> by Mark Mylod. Uh, starring Anna Taylor-Joy, Ray Fiennes and Nicholas Holt. And this is a film, a young couple visits an exclusive restaurant of a world-renowned chef, which is on a secluded island, but dinner soon takes a sinister turn. I don't want to do too many fun food puns because I'll start to make myself feel sick, but it is delicious and sumptuous. I uh, I, I, I really enjoyed it. It's um, a very slow, deliberate build-up which kind of matches the pace of a high-end meal. You know, these meals where you get your dishes are super small and, um, you know, the Michelin star sort of thing. And and it's the film is all broken up into the dishes. So you start off with the the, um, the aperitifs and the starter. There's the bread course. And, it, and um, each bit is split up into these little title cards that describe the um, what's on the menu. And um, and it's very much it's very much shot in the way of these um, high end almost pretentious cooking things shows you can watch on Netflix you know like Chef's Table and stuff um, which <laughs> is really funny and then the title cards themselves just get funnier and funnier as the as the film progresses and again I don't want to spoil too much because it will ruin I think everyone that watches it knows where it's going. Um, but it's still really fun going through the menu. There. It's like, well, it's like reading a menu and you know it's going to taste good, but you're going to enjoy it anyway. Um, yeah, most of the characters at the dinner are despicable. It's kind of like Glass Onion in that sense um, because they are the worst of society. You know, you've got, you've got the... Uh, dare I say it's not great on critics guys um, where <laughs> food critics that just can't cook Ooh. themselves and tear down other people's work <laughs> that they get destroyed um, rich people with no taste that are just there for show get destroyed Influence, uh, influencers that are there just to take photos of the meal and not actually <laughs> enjoy it destroyed um, people uh, rich politicians that are just there that are just using the food as fuel destroyed uh, so it is. It's yeah. It's it, none of the characters are exactly <laughs> likable, apart from Anna Taylor Joy and weirdly Ray Fiennes. But that kind of works because when certain people get their comeuppance, you enjoy it. Um, 
it plays really nicely with the pretentiousness of, of this, you know, setting and high-end meals like this, you know, the bread, the bread course being served, but there being no bread was just a really, really funny sequence. Um, and Anna Taylor-Joy is the sort of outsider that's brought into this um, setting. So her incredulousness and just bullshit a meter where she just calls out, no, I want some fucking bread. I'm hungry is really funny. Um, it's kind of, as I've said before, it's kind of a, a, a gilded B movie because um, it's shot so beautifully like these food shows are, but it is 100% B movie horror thriller. Um, so don't don't go in thinking you're going to find this deeper meaning. It wears its heart on its sleeve. Its central theme is really nice. Um, Ray finds motivations for what's made him do what he does is really it's affecting and um, and you're with him with it, but but don't think it's going to stay with you um, past the credits rolling. Um, but it's all mixed in with some, there's some real shocks. Some some of the turns, I was like, oh, okay, okay, didn't expect that. And it's also very funny. Um, a laugh out loud moments. It descends into the absurd and I, I was I was washed away and loving it. Ray finds, you know, I, I won't bore you by saying he's a great actor, but he's great in this. He's a, He's devilish and terrifying, but subtly funny. Um, a Taylor Joy, she's a force of nature playing like the final girl. She's great, great at that. And uh, Nicholas Holt, who I, I thought was great in Mad Max. I've not loved him in a lot of other stuff, but he was really good in this as, again, like Edward Norton playing a smarmy prick. You hope he doesn't get typecast here because he was great at that. Um, yeah, <laughs> really enjoyed it. I, I, I think put it on and it'll, it'll shake you out of your after sun malaise if you've got that, guys. Um, and uh, yeah, you'll enjoy That's the meal. Good. I'll also just finish by saying Anna Taylor Joy and Ray Fiennes have the best faces in the business. Like you can just hold on a close up of them, and they've got such interesting faces that sometimes I wasn't even listening to what they were saying because. They almost look like aliens, beautiful aliens. They're just so strangely hypnotic um, that, yeah, I could have just enjoyed uh, 90 minutes of just, just watching them eat, which sounds a bit weird now I've said it. And I would be, well, I'd be deserving of a place out of that restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> Some of the best bits in um, that film, Last Night in Soho, the Edgar Wright movie, are just Anya Taylor-Joy's face. Like, just her looking forlorn or her looking hopeful or her looking hopeless. So, yeah, I'd I, I join you. If you do manage to find that film that is both of them just eating for 90 minutes, I'll I'll be there, front row. <laughs> it sounds like, I mean, people have drawn the parallels, haven't they, between Glass Onion and that? So it's, it's kind of hitting the same targets yeah it's it's very similar it is very similar definitely hitting the same targets and you know right down to the secluded island um yeah probably speaks of where we are with society at the moment because it is i i having watched them fairly close together i was like oh gosh we're very angry eat the rich um so yeah it was interesting that one fantastic is that still out in cinemas is it on a streaming platform Sorry, um, so yeah, I think it's got a limited run still in cinemas. It was out November last year, but it's on Disney Plus now. Fantastic. Yeah, I want to check that out. Um, Sam, what else have you been watching? So yeah, um, I'd like to continue with the trend that we've got here of um, talking about films that came out last year that probably would have been on our best films of the year list had we watched them in 2022. Um, but sadly, we watched them in 2023. Um, and I'm going to talk about um, a film um, with a title that sounds like a glam rock album, 
but is quite far removed from that vibe. And that is the documentary Fire of Love, which every time I say it, I want to say Fire of Love. Um, <laughs> but it's an absolutely sensational documentary about um, two a married volcanologist couple. That's volcanologist, not Vulcan like um, from Star Trek. Um, so it's about Katia yeah. and Maurice Kraft, um, who are two French volcanologists who loved two things in life, each other and volcanoes. Um, this film is billed as the greatest lava-fueled love story ever told, and it hits both of those marks absolutely perfectly. So Katia and Maurice Kraft... Um, dedicated their entire life to volcanoes, the research of volcanoes, looking at volcanoes, chasing volcanoes, thinking about volcanoes, being in the presence of volcanoes. And they did loads and loads of research and shot lots and lots of footage that is breathtaking, absolutely insanely good footage of some of the most like most beautiful and dangerous things that nature could possibly throw up before you. Um, so basically this film is... Um, a really elegant kind of like compilation of their footage that they put together. So there's no talking heads. There's no people sitting with a black background going, explaining what you're seeing. You're just seeing their footage um, compiled and directed by documentary filmmaker Sarah Dozer and narrated by actor-director Miranda July. And it is one of the most uniquely wonderful documentary experiences I've ever had. It's really, it is genuinely like a love story that also features sick footage of volcanoes which is something i never knew i needed in my life until i watched this movie um so yeah the footage that they shot because they were shooting it in like the 70s and 80s has this really great aesthetic to it it's like four four by three uh vhs kind of footage that has this kind of wes anderson kind of vibe to it it almost feels like i know that wes anderson um, for Life Aquatic specifically was inspired by Jacques Cousteau but if he also wasn't inspired by the footage that Maurice and Katia Kraft make then I will fight him because he'll be lying <laughs> um, the footage is amazing and it really just captures the passion and the energy of these people they're so lovely and you love kind of hanging out with them and sharing their passion and their enthusiasm they're also incredibly brave people there is footage of them like closer to an active volcano than I'd be willing to get to like a slightly angry dog. Like it's the footage is genuinely some of the most incredible stuff you've ever seen. And there these this beautiful tiny little French couple that just take their lives into their own hands. There's a great ongoing bit where Maurice Kraft, the um, husband of the duo, talks about how his ultimate goal in life is to build a boat that he can ride down a lava flow. And he talks about it on these like French paddle shows with like with a cheeky wink in his eye. But there is a there's a bit in the film that involves a boat that makes you believe that he genuinely would have done that had he do, had he been able to do it. But he looks like a guy that you'd bump into buying baguettes on a Parisian street. It's sensational. Um, the film kind of um, obviously covers their lives and their like vol volcanic passion. Um, both for each other and for volcanoes. And it's just such a beautiful experience. It looks amazing. The footage that they capture is worth worthy of watching just in itself. But the way that um, Sarah Dozer has kind of like compiled and crafted the footage and the way that Miranda July's um, commentary over the top is really like, it's the great combination of like factual and lyrical. So there's these nice bits where they're kind of crafting the story and crafting their kind of like... Um, 
their vibe and their like ethos kind of thing, but also telling you some sick facts about volcanoes. It's genuinely such a unique experience. Um, so yeah, that's currently on Disney Plus, um, and it is well, well worth your time. It's just like I said, one of the it's the most unique documentary I've seen in quite some time, and the the visuals of it alone. You could watch this film on mute with none of the music, none of the voiceover, none of the dialogue, and you'd still be like. That's sick. That was really, really great. So yeah, if you've got any interest in love or volcanoes, boy, do I have a film for you. (laughs) (laughs) Sweet. I watched... um, So I've I've really wanted to watch this. Coincidentally, I don't know why this happened, but uh, Werner Herzog released a documentary as well last year about the same two people uh, called The Fire Within. Uh, And I watched this on bbc it was on i think it's on the iplayer so it might still be up there um it's definitely i think probably a bit more of a run-of-the-mill Herzog documentary so it probably doesn't have any of the as much of the sort of unique flair of the film that you're talking about but mm. you know it's got it, it's the same story it obviously uses a lot of the same ah. footage that they <clears throat> a lot of the same footage that they film and it's also got Herzog's narration, which is always worthwhile, isn't it? So strange that these two films that have emerged at the same time last year. I wonder if it was something to do. I wonder if maybe like their footage was unearthed or discovered or something. But Herzog also did. Have you seen Into the Inferno that he did? He did a, yeah. another. I mean, of course, Werner Herzog loves volcanoes. It's really on brand for him, isn't it? But I'll, <laughs> I'll see. I'll seek out that one. I'd be interested to know what your thoughts would be watching um, Fire of Love. If it's because it's a, if it's the same story and same footage, I wonder how differently. I mean, Herzog compared to Sarah Dozer, I imagine are quite different filmmakers. So, I'd be interested to know what you think of Fire because I'd obviously not seen the footage before, and I think the footage and the way that it's compiled is a big part of why this film worked so well for me. Because you spend half your time going like, "Oh, they're so cute! What a lovely story! That looks really nice!" and being like, "Holy fuck! How do they get that close to magma?" You know, yeah. it's a good combo. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think the Fire of Love is the film that got the more the wider release and most of the press, and probably, I mean, I'd be surprised if it's not nominated for the documentary Oscar, probably. Um, yeah. Whereas Herzog's, I think, you know, flew more under the radar. Um, yeah, which is mad because well, it's Werner Herzog, but you know, well, he makes like three films a year, doesn't he? So that... <laughs> actually, yeah, <laughs> um, he's doing the yeah. Knives Out Laws of Averages thing, where he's like, I'll just make <laughs> yeah. hundreds of movies, and if someone goes, there's twelve that are great. I've done my job. Right. Well, there we go. What a great episode to start the year. Uh, I hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, some fantastic films uh, that we've been talking about over the last uh, last hour or so. We're going to be back with you in a couple of weeks' time. And uh, we're going to be talking about, yeah, the film that I said I was really excited to talk about, uh, Iron's Men, the new Cornish folk horror film from Mark Jenkin. Uh, Bill, you may be talking about a different film, I suspect, given the very limited release of this film. But fingers crossed, we'll all be if talking possible. about it. If possible, but if not, I'll watch something shy. Bill, why don't you try and go to Cornwall and live the experience that's shown about in Ennis Men? Like, you should try and live it live it for yourself and then come back and report. Like, an on the field, a field report. That'd be great. Yeah, I'll do the reality. I'll do the reality of it. Okay, thank you both. Speak to you then. Bye. Ta-ra. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Creaky Chair Film Podcast. If you like what you heard, it would mean the world to us if you told someone about the show. Tell them about it even if you hated it. Or even if you just felt really apathetic about it. Yeah, there's no such thing as bad press. If you can leave us a review on wherever you're listening, that'd be amazing. And don't forget, we're on all of the social media things. 
Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, MySpace, Bebo, MSN Messenger. And that's at Creaky Chair Pod on Instagram and at Creaky Chair on Twitter. And if you search Creaky Chair Film Podcast on Facebook, you'll find us there too. You can even email us at creakychairfilmpodcast at gmail.com if you want to send us your essay about how much we were well out of order with the ice road. <laughs>